electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. The markets are hitting new records this week, the same week that COVID is, with record cases and hospitalizations. How long can this disconnect last? We are going to dig into that. The COVID spike is straining medical resources, especially in the South. What happens now? We'll talk that over with the CEO of one of the biggest hospital systems in Texas. And Bitcoin bursts higher, Disney's in your queue, and a tax on working from home. It's all ahead this hour, but let's start with the markets. Like we said, records this week, Dom, but definitely a pause today. It's a pause to, to, to start the day. I mean, we were mixed in the markets, but as you can see now, we're decidedly to the downside, led lower by losses in the Dow Industrials. Now, we're down 311 points near the session lows right now. At the highs of the day, we were still down 86 and down 354 points roughly at the low. So again, tilting towards that way right now, the S&P down by 1%, 3537 the level there, and the Nasdaq actually outperforming only down by one half of 1%. We'll get into the reasons why there in just a bit. But take a look at one key part of the market right now that has been an underperformer so far in 2020, but an outperformer over the last few weeks. That is the banking sector, financials, interest rates playing a part of that story. But look at that big surge that we've seen just since about the end of September up to the highs that we saw about a week or so ago. We're talking about 45 percent gains for this particular ETF that tracks the regional banks. We're off about 6 percent from those levels here. So watch those regional banks, the economic recovery story playing out in financials like that. And then. Check out Facebook, Alphabet, and Pinterest, some of the outperformers on a relative basis today. Why? Morgan Stanley analysts are out with a note saying that they could see the digital advertising market grow markedly, not just this year, but next year in 2021 as well. Those poised to outperform are Facebook, Alphabet, and Pinterest. They named some of those stocks there. So watch those communication services stocks. The reason why the Nasdaq perhaps outperforming today, Kelly. I'll send things back over to you. Still, Dom, that's amazing. I mean, the regional banks are up 45% from their lows. That's, that's huge. It's massive, and, and not just the lows from earlier this year. We're talking about the lows that we saw just back in September, around September 24th. That's how markedly people have been playing this recovery story, especially with the banks, Kel. Yeah. All right, Dom, we'll see you in a bit. Thank you, sir, Dom Chu. The Dow and the S&P are just below the record highs that they set earlier this week. This whole rally that Dom was just talking about as well came even as our nation has also been setting a record for daily virus cases and hospitalizations. Is this mix sustainable? Here to discuss the stock market COVID disconnect, Gina Sanchez is CEO of Chantico Global and a CNBC contributor. And Jeff Mortimer is Director of Investment Strategy at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Welcome to you both. And Gina, I think this is an important question to ask because the, even today, you could say, sure, the market's down, you know, Dow's down a couple hundred, you know, we're talking about maybe 1%. Um, it's resilience, I think, is the story. What do you think explains it in the wake of the hospitalization count, especially on the COVID front, soon the death count uh, ticking back towards record highs? 
Well, I think that the markets uh, immediately kind of assumed that this would be a temporary phenomenon, that COVID um, would have some, uh, you know, disruptive uh, impacts, but that those impacts would be more or less temporary. And I think as this second wave starts to hit, we're starting to really challenge those assumptions. Some of these impacts are going to be more than temporary. They're going to be at least medium term, if not long term. And even with a vaccine potentially coming, um, we still have to re kind of visit how how we think about pricing right now. We've let prices, PEs, get really high, assuming that eventually earnings would come back. If earnings don't come back, then PEs have to adjust. Right. And Jeff, listen, I mean, we all can look ahead into 2021 and see the prospect of a vaccine. Hopefully Moderna's news is somewhere near as good as Pfizer's was, but we can see that positive scenario. We just aren't there yet. So what happens in the meantime? And are you concerned that we're going to see more officials in more states pursue even just targeted uh, restrictions, you know, targeted dining and using gyms and uh, those kinds of restrictions and that people will voluntarily restrict their movement as well in the kind of way that could slow the economy and perhaps slow the market? I don't think we're in for the general lockdowns that we faced in February and March of, uh, of this year. But I certainly think a targeted uh, slowdowns or shutdowns or mandates uh, will be in our future, unfortunately. We know more about the virus uh, today than we did back then. And certainly uh, the, the impact that uh, uh, generic shutdowns has on economic recovery it can be substantial. But I think we have to prepare ourselves for a difficult winter, potentially in the U.S., um, especially on, in the northern, uh, in the northern portions of our country. Certainly a vaccine is all good news. Better therapeutics are all good news. But I think what you're seeing this week may be a microcosm of good news on a vaccine leads you to value stocks because value stocks do well when the economy is supposed to be when the economy is surprisingly strong and a vaccine has the ability to turn that switch immediately. And yet then you're seeing days like today where, oh, wait a minute, it may even with a vaccine, it may take a little bit longer and we may face a more difficult winter. So you think the, the advice we're giving to our clients is make sure you own both here and not get over your skis too much on those growth assets because eventually we think stronger economic growth is coming, but it's probably some choppiness in the near term before we get there. All right. If you both could hold on for just a moment, we had 30-year debt going up for auction at the top of the hour. Given interest rates lately, we want to bring Rick Santelli right in. Uh, he has those results for us. Rick, the 10-year earlier this week, you gave, I think, a D plus, so not great demand. How did the 30-year go? Barely better. Barely better. I gave it a Charlie minus, C minus, and I was in a good mood today. Listen, these auctions aren't going very well, especially today, considering that yields are starting to move up. The resistance is clear to make it through uh, 175 on a 30-year bond. But let's go through it quickly. The yield at the Dutch auction, 1.68. That was a little higher than where the when issued was traded, so a little demerit for that. 2.29 bid to cover a little light, 61.9 a little light on indirects. Where it excelled was 16.5 on direct bidders, 21.6% of this auction goes to primary dealers. As you mentioned last time, when we look at these indirect bidders on the light side, uh, it's not a big issue as it was with tens, but there's your kind of foreigners uh, with regard to we want to pay attention to foreign central banks and hedge funds, which are more direct. But I gave this a Charlie minus for good reason, and that is it's going against the grain. Many traders right now are looking to be buying some of this rally that's starting to ensue in treasuries, but they're not showing up at the auction. Kelly, back to you. 
All right, fair enough, Rick. By the way, did the comments from Powell today move the needle one way or the other for the market? They, they really didn't. They really didn't. Listen, we all want to know what Chairman Powell has to say. Of course, he's holding all the levers, but pretty much his comments uh, shouldn't be shocking in any way. And I still contend that when the virus actually comes AD after distribution, Fed's going to have their hands full trying to keep up with the economy coming back at a time where we have many issues regarding supply satisfying big demand. AD. <laughs> Rick, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate it. Rick Santelli with those auction results for us. Gina, any, anything you'd add on that front? I mean, as we watch interest rates, I guess my, my closing question to you would be, what happens to the market if an official in one of the highly populated states comes out tomorrow morning and says, you know, some version of we're going back not to a full shutdown, uh, but something like it. I mean, how, how many Dow points would that be worth? Well, I mean, Kelly, I don't think I, I agree that I think a full lockdown is unlikely, but I actually think the bigger risk isn't the announcements. It's that people are going to start voluntarily uh, restricting their movements, and that will hold down the economy regardless of what announcement is made tomorrow. I think you can't avoid it with the numbers coming out the way they are. We are going to see a slowdown, and we're going to see it at a time when we have no fiscal package on the table, and so no ability to help people float through what is going to be another other very difficult time, um, small businesses, individuals, and corporations. This is going to be harder than All the right. last time because there will be no buffer. Well, I have to leave it there for now. Uh, apologies, but thank you both. Jeff Mortimer, Gina Sanchez on these markets. We appreciate it today. Let's turn to housing now and two potential bright spots that we're seeing here. Robert Frank is looking at one in the Manhattan real estate market. Diana Olick is looking at another with vacations and especially multi-generational properties. Diana, let's start with you. Well, Kelly, in the new work and school from anywhere culture, it should come as no surprise at all that people are choosing to do that from the spots where they generally vacation. Sales of vacation homes are soaring, and we have a look at the hottest spots according to Redfin. Lake Tahoe comes in at the top of the list with sales up 80 percent through the third quarter of this year compared with a year ago. Then the area around Bend, Oregon. The Jersey Shore, Cape Cod, and Bridgeport, Connecticut. Sales up in some of those places over 50%, over 80%. The transplants are coming generally from San Francisco, New York City, and Boston. And regardless of where people are now buying, they're buying big. Sales of multi-generational homes, that's homes with often have second kitchens and entrances, jumped to 15% of all sales so far during the pandemic, and that's from 11% pre-COVID, according to the new report from the National Association of Realtors. No surprise between vacation homes and larger homes, people are paying much more. The average sale price, about $70,000 higher during the pandemic. And believe it or not, 5% of all the buyers who bought homes during this time never set foot in the house, never saw it, Kelly. I, I believe that, actually. <laughs> but one thing we learned on our own home search was the ones that look best online were worst in person and vice versa. So a, a word <laughs> of caution there. Diana, I'm curious if the news flow just this week, you've got the vaccine news. You've got uh, interest rates on the rebound a little bit. That means mortgage rates on the rebound. Um, and the, and I, the glimmer of hope that Robert's about to discuss, I mean, in, in the urban markets, because there's such bargain shopping going on, could all of that actually slow uh, the housing market? I mean, people, the expectations are still pretty high going into 2021 right now. 
Yeah, look, demand is still very strong, and that's just because of demographics of the millennials getting into the age where they buy homes. But there may be a slight pullback. We actually saw it. Realtor.com just reported that around the election, there was a slight pullback in home sales and a definite pullback in home listings. But you hit the nail on the head. It's the mortgage rates going higher that's really going to hurt this market, if anything. And so we may see a slight pullback as people say, oh, I don't need quite that much home if maybe I'm not going to be working from home next year. But there is going to still be very strong demand. All right, Diana, appreciate it. Thank you very much, Diana Olick. Let's get to Robert Frank now with some pretty surprising good news on the Manhattan rental market. What's going on, Robert? Well, Kelly, you put it well, a small glimmer of hope for a market that really needs it right now. New rentals in Manhattan increasing 33% in October. That is the first increase in over a year. Brokers say the fall in prices are finally starting to lure young renters back to the city. Now, rental prices falling by 19%. That is a record drop, and landlords are offering two months of free rent right now as an incentive. The average rent paid, including discounts now, about $2,900 a month. Also, some good news on the sales side as well, sales contracts between November 1st and November 11th. So that includes the election news and that vaccine news. That increased 21%. That marked the first year-over-year increase since the pandemic in March. Now, Manhattan has a really long climb back here, guys. There were 16,000 unrented apartments in October. That was a record. The vacancy rate in Manhattan normally is about 2% now over 6%. You add in the potential rise in cases, the huge supply of real estate that's expected to come online this year and next in Manhattan, and any comeback is likely to be very slow. Now, just for an example, this 2,000-square-foot three-bedroom in the financial district was listed for $14,000 a month, now down to $10,000 a month, but there are over 25 other apartments for rent in the same building, Kelly. So that just gives you a sense of even with a 19% decline in rent prices, there's still a lot of supply and a lot of choice for renters and buyers. Yeah, the New York Post today features millennials who can now afford to live alone in the city because rents have dropped so much. And that's, I mean, that's what they're excited about. That's how tight the market usually is. Um, but are we seeing a similar rebound effect, Robert, yet on the, uh, on the purchasing side of things? So the rentals, we're seeing a rebound, but what about on purchases? It's interesting. So rentals are two thirds of the market in Manhattan. So the sales side is smaller and slower and prices have fallen 19 percent of the rental side. But on the sales side, they've only only fallen between five and 10 percent. So what you have there is a game of chicken where sellers have not lowered prices enough yet to lure to lure buyers back into the sales market. And we're just going to have to see whether sellers finally capitulate in the coming months, but not really the signs of strength in the sales side that we're seeing on the rental side quite yet. That's shocking that prices have only adjusted by that much. You're right, that's absolutely the area to watch. Robert, thank you. Our Robert Frank. Coming up, the Dow is at the lows of the session, down about 370, almost 400 points right now. We'll have more on the markets. Flip side is Bitcoin hitting the highest level since 2018. Bill Miller and Stan Druckenmiller both supporting it on the show over the past week. Is the sky the limit now? We'll explore. And COVID cases are rising everywhere, especially in the South. We'll speak with the CEO of one of the largest hospital systems in Texas to see how well their healthcare system can handle the spike and if more restrictions are needed. We're back in a couple. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. COVID has been spreading rapidly across the country with a record 142,000 new cases reported since yesterday. The U.S. has now had more than 10 million cases, nearly 1.3 million of them just so far this month. And nearly 65,000 people are currently hospitalized. One of the hardest hit states has been Texas. It's the first to top a million cases, now recording more than 10,000 cases each day. Joining me now is Dr. David Callender. He's president and CEO of the Memorial Hermann Health System, the largest hospital system in Houston and one of the largest in Texas. Doctor, it's great to have you. I have so many questions. To start with, can you put this in context? Obviously, a high population state is going to have the highest number of cases at some point. Um, but why do you think this spike is happening now? Well, we're actually see, seeing the infection move around the state differentially. What I mean by that is those areas that were initially spared, the higher infection rates are now seeing those. Areas like Houston, which saw a high infection rate back in the summer, have a lower overall rate. Probably the principal reason for that is that experience with the virus drives behavior. Those communities that have seen higher infection rates are more likely to wear masks, maintain appropriate social distancing, and wash their hands. And so we believe right now that the higher rates being experienced around some parts of our state are mostly related to behavior. So this spring, when we had the lockdowns, the entire point was to flatten the curve and not overwhelm our national health care system all at once. And as we look now to the situation you're describing in Texas, do measures to flatten the curve need to be taken again by state officials? Are you saying that people's kind of own response is going to be sufficient uh, to keep this from spiking further? Because uh, it feels like we're in the middle of this. The numbers are only going to keep climbing here in the next uh, weeks, to say the least. Well, again, we think uh, that experience tends to drive behavior. We're certainly hearing reports that there's a higher rate of the population now in El Paso that's wearing masks, that's following the behavioral guidelines that we recommend. We think that's the best approach as opposed to any additional lockdown measures. We know we need to keep the economy going. In fact, during the period of lockdown back in the spring, we actually saw the health of our population suffer because people were unwilling or unable to come to our hospitals and clinics. So what we would really like mm -hmm. to see is people willingly use these behavioral guidelines and help us stop or slow the transmission of the virus. And hopefully that's enough. You know, how, how do you respond in the, in the meantime? So like you said, you know, if these are more rural hospitals, there's a lot of concern about getting more personnel there. Like we were talking about on the show yesterday, you know, you can only there's only so many doctors and healthcare professionals to distribute when this is hitting so many different parts of the country at once. Um, what are you seeing? How well are people coping with this surge? Um, and what happens if they get overrun? Well, it's a huge problem in some of these communities. For example, El Paso, which you mentioned earlier, they're stretched to their limits. We certainly felt that same sort of stretch in Houston and in Dallas earlier in the year during the summer. And so it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And as I said, the principal problem 
when we're at capacity or dealing with a large surge is that people then are unwilling to come for care, are not able to come for care. So we want to avoid those as much as we can. Yeah. My quick final question. There's been a lot of talk about how the Pfizer vaccine needs to be stored in incredibly low temperatures and a lot of rural hospitals may not have those resources. Is that a problem you think we can solve by the time it's widely distributed? Or, you know, is this something that we need to be kind of ringing the alarm bells about right now? No, I think we can solve that problem. We've known for some time that these vaccines require ultra cold storage and special arrangements for transportation as well as distribution and administration. So we're not particularly worried here about those conditional requirements for managing the vaccines. We think we can handle those. Yeah, and hopefully we get to that point sooner than later given everything else we're describing. Dr. Callender, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Dr. have a David good day. Dr. Callender is with Memorial Hermit Health System in Texas. Coming up, Disney is reporting earnings this afternoon with all eyes on its streaming strategy. Stock is up 12% this month. Can they deliver on expectations? We'll explore that. Plus, Deutsche Bank proposes a 5% tax for people still working from home after the pandemic. Why and what could this accomplish? Don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app anytime. The Exchange is back in two minutes. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets keep sliding as we move throughout the afternoon here. Dow's at a fresh low, down just about 400 points, a little bit off that level right now, down 391. And that's a 1.3% decline. The S&P is down just about that much, 45 points at 3527. And the Nasdaq is down 91. All the sectors are in the red today. Financials and materials are the biggest laggards, so we still have that anti-rotation feel. Here are some of the individual movers this hour. Shares of Room are lower despite a smaller-than-expected loss in their last quarter and better-than-expected revenue. Their current quarter guidance came in below estimates, though. The online used car seller saying it expects losses to widen. Shares are down 10%. Sally Beauty is also lower on a revenue miss. Declining sales due to salon shutdowns in California, one of the headwinds for them. They're also down 10%. And shares of Fox, they're also taking a leg lower today. Axios reporting President Trump may be looking to start a digital media company to compete with the network. The president also taking aim at the network on Twitter today, saying they forgot what made them successful. Fox A shares are down 6%. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. A helicopter crash in Egypt's Sinai Peninsula has killed eight international peacekeepers, including six Americans. Another American peacekeeper is badly injured. They were on a routine mission monitoring the long-standing peace agreement between Israel and Egypt. New daily COVID cases in the UK are up 46 percent just from yesterday, hitting more than 33,000, the highest tally since mass testing began. The UK is also the first European country to pass 50,000 deaths. Longtime Trump advisor Corey Lewandowski tells CNBC.com he feels great after testing positive for COVID. Lewandowski, seen here at a news conference two days after the election, has been involved in the Trump campaign's efforts to challenge Biden's victory. And today, the president-elect is thanking Pope Francis for, quote, extending blessings and congratulations in a phone call the two had. You are up to date, Kelly. I'll see you next hour. Back to you. 
All right, Sue, thank you very much. Coming up, it's Bitcoin's big bounce. Wall Street bonuses, they're not going to be the same in 2020. If you want to see a concert, Ticketmaster wants to see your COVID test, and it's all coming up in rapid fire. Plus, the propane problem. The industry is seeing demand spike as outdoor dining becomes the norm, and this mystery stock is benefiting. The CEO joins us ahead. As the Dow adds to its losses, let's take a look at the laggards right now as we head to a break. Intel, McDonald's, IBM, and Walgreens all weighing, but in the range of 2 to 3%. It's a pretty broad-based sell-off today. We're down nearly 400, and we're back in a couple. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to take on the headlines are Seema Modi, Michael Santoli, and Leslie Picker. Welcome, everybody. And first up, Bitcoin bulls rejoice. The cryptocurrency's price going back above $16,000 for the first time since January of 2018. And this time, it has some big backers who believe in it. It's staying power. Uh, gets gets better every day. I think the risks in, of Bitcoin going to zero are, are much, much lower than they, they've ever been before. I have warmed up to the fact that um, Bitcoin could be an asset class <clears throat> that has a lot of attraction to it as a store of value to both millennials and the new West Coast money. It's been around for 13 years, and with each passing day, it picks up more, more of its stabilization of a brand. So SEMA, I mean, and I again should point out, Bill Miller has supported Bitcoin for a long, long time. And Miller, as you heard there, is kind of giving it faint praise. But and let me read this tweet. I don't know if we've made it up from Raul Paul, uh, the macro strategist, who said, once you have somebody uh, with the heft of Miller, the world's greatest and most respected money manager, saying that he's long Bitcoin, he says it can't be overstated. It has removed every obstacle for any hedge fund or endowment to invest. And Seema, I wonder if that explains why people are piling in. Yeah, I think getting this head nod from well-respected, well-seasoned investors like Stanley Druckenmiller is what this industry has been craving for so many years. Investors beyond the Winklevi and Chamath Palpatia to say they're starting to warm up to the idea of Bitcoin's prospects. However, Kelly, the risks around fraud and theft, those have not gone away. The industry still trying, and the SEC, still trying to figure out how to tackle those issues. And I think that's something to keep in mind as we see Bitcoin here surge, breaking above 16,000. Michael, what would you add to that? I mean, it's tricky because we've seen so many of these things where they become, you know, hot commodities and then they more or less collapse. I mean, I'm yeah. thinking about the cannabis stocks a few years ago. I'm thinking about Bitcoin, the way that it felt around Thanksgiving of 2017. You know, all of those kinds of moments. To me, the most interesting thing about this is it's kind of more like Tesla. It's had its spike and then it's come back and it's showing yeah. some staying power. It's kind of a, a little bit of an echo bubble. I mean, I guess that it's what are exactly we getting excited about that it's only down 15 or 20 percent from three years ago when the stock market's up 50 percent. Are we getting excited that it's almost 300 billion dollars in total value of all Bitcoin? Bitcoin, when you have that's what PayPal and Square together, their market caps are. I think if it's just a, if we all agree it's a tradable instrument, it's it's a quasi asset class. It's something we can uh, say it has value and we're going to actually treat it that way. There's a lot of things that exist in that world, in that realm. Uh, and, you know, we have derivatives <laughs> upon derivatives that trade massive amounts. It doesn't mean they need to, to, to have a, a, a purpose beyond that. What I find fascinating is 
The conventional wisdom a few years ago was not so sure about Bitcoin, but the blockchain. Right now, the blockchain, blockchain seems like right. a solution in, ter- in search of a problem. And Bitcoin is just this speculative <laughs> plaything. Hey, let, you know, have at it. So, by the way, it's also a bull market in digital That's money so and electronic true. transfers of all types. And it's playing it. I, I would also add one more thing, so, which is, uh, oh, sorry, for every Stan Druckenmiller out there touting the benefit or, or at least warming up to the benefit of Bitcoin, you have Ray Dalio, who gave an interview this week saying that, you know, he's concerned that governments might ban Bitcoin and that that's still a possibility. Uh, so you definitely still have this debate that's ongoing. Uh, and it seems to be as heated as it was three years ago. You answered my question, Leslie, before I even asked it, because I was just going to say, you know, are we likely <laughs> to see endowments and institutions line up next? And, <laughs> and I think that you that would suggest maybe we're not quite there yet. And probably the Bitcoin bulls would say, great, that means I can keep buying. Uh, moving along, the pandemic is hitting wallets on Wall Street. Year-end bonuses are expected to decline this year from 2019. Johnson Associates says retail and commercial bankers will be hardest hit. Their bonus is expected to shrink up to 30 percent. Investment bankers could see payments drop up to 20 percent. Banks haven't done particularly well this year. They're the second worst performing sector, down 14 percent. But Leslie, I mean, can you dig into this a little bit for us and and explain not so much just what's driving the declines? But I mean, bonuses have been it feels like they've been shrinking for a while now. They certainly haven't gotten any bigger relative to where they were maybe a decade ago. And I'm wondering about the implications uh, for the economies that rely on them as well. It's a, it's a very good question. You're right. They haven't grown in years at this point. And, you know, in an environment like this one in 2020 where, you know, you talk to traders, you talk to people who work at these various firms looking at lower bonuses in a year that, you know, by every stretch of the measure, it seems like, you know, has been disappointing for people. It, it's hard. And it's hard when you're working from home and trying to do the same job that you were once doing in an office. But at the end of the day, Finance is a business. If you're not showing the performance that you had before, you're not going to get paid for that performance. And so that's what you see in the hedge fund world. That's what you see in the private equity world, uh, where the returns are coming in lower. It's become a difficult market to trade. And therefore, people aren't getting paid in the way that they used to maybe 10 years ago or so. And so I think the question for people now is, okay, it's been several years of this. Is this kind of the way things just are now? Should I just be expecting these lower bonus levels? Or is there going to be some sort of inflection where things get better? Michael, would you answer that one way or the other? I, I do think that the ceiling is lower. Uh, probably it's a little less of a eat what you kill, sink or swim type environment. Maybe the, there's a little more predictability to it as a trade-off. But, you know, this year as well, sales and trading, certain parts of, of uh, Wall Street have done pretty well. And for those areas, like, you know, parts of investment banking, not so much M&A advisory, but trading-oriented, capital markets-oriented jobs, they're probably going to do fine because the crash happened at the perfect time of the year. It happened in the first quarter. And then you've had this massive comeback in this massive, massive issuance boom. So parts of, uh, of the industry are doing fine, but th- there's no doubt that it's, it's less of a bonanza than it used to be. Yeah, I thought I agree with you. I thought maybe that that would point towards at least some offset from the, the other parts of the business that are in decline, but maybe just not enough. And kind of to the same point, because there's a lot of trading going on on my street, at least. A research team at Deutsche Bank is proposing a 5% work from home tax for people who want to continue working from home after the pandemic. They're saying because remote workers tend to have higher than average incomes, the new tax could raise up to $48 billion a year in the U.S. Um, Seema, I mean, what, what, how do we categorize this as a thought experiment? I mean, 
it's not something that starts with a need and, and arrives at a way to get there. It seems to start with a premise that work from home is um, unfair and that as a result, someone should pay up for that. Yeah, exactly. It's an interesting idea. I guess that that's what we can call it right now, a way to raise funds for those who don't have the luxury or the option to work from home. You know, I think of construction workers, uh, health workers as well. Um, but I think then you have to get into this idea that there's still a lot of folks who can't go into the office because of health issues or parenting demands. So I think there, this is an idea that will likely face uh, some pushback given those certain circumstances. Michael, what do you think? You know, it's interesting. I do agree with you that it, it starts as basically a remedy for perceived inequality as opposed to uh, any other uh, version of fairness, because people who are working from home are, are a little bit less uh, putting in less societal cost in terms of use of roads and, and, and all these other things that you kind of draw upon if you're going into the office every day. So arguably, they're saving society money at some level. So it does seem uh, redistributional as opposed to really having a, you know, a basis in, in what things cost to the, to the overall world. But I, I will be awaiting Seema's 5% because she's, she's doing this from home today. So. <laughs> okay, Let's see. Fine, I fair. have to pony up. Seema has to pony up. Leslie, you're exempt. Thank you. That's lunch money right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm also curious, but just real quickly before we move on, Leslie, $48 billion um, is not a lot. For example, if you look at the CARES Act or the scope of the PPP programs or something to that effect, I mean, there's still money left over from those that could be distributed into the economy. Um, 5%, I'm actually surprised it wouldn't raise more than that. And I actually think it could raise less than that because they say that this this would only apply when working from home wasn't a government recommendation and that it wouldn't apply to the self-employed or those on low incomes. So then you kind of think, well, who's left? And then they say that they'll tax the employer. Well, if your employer is being taxed 5% on all the employees that are working from home, some employers might do the math maybe in, in New York or one of those higher real estate places where commercial real estate is much higher and say, actually, it's cheaper for us to have our employees at home. Uh, but other places might say, well, yeah. if it's going to cost us 5%, then you better get, you know, get back in the building. Exactly. If anything, I would bet supporters of this would be like the mayor of New York City, San Francisco. <laughs> Maybe it'll be an incentive uh, to get people back here and get our cities going again. OK, finally, Ticketmaster is reportedly working on a framework for getting fans back in stands at major concerts. Billboard reporting the company aims to use smartphones to verify each attendee's vaccination status or whether they've tested negative for covid within a 24 to 72 hour window. So Live Nation, the owner of Ticketmaster, got a nice boost on Monday's vaccine news but the shares are still down about 12% year-to-date. Seema, is this feasible? Until we get access to a vaccine, making sure that every person that enters a concert venue has been tested uh, is critical. Although I would just say there are a lot of false negatives out there. We already saw that just with the cruise line right now that's, that's sort of operating a mock voyage out in the Caribbean where someone who tested negative, but then they got on the ship and they ended up actually being positive for COVID. So anyways, back to the, this whole concert model. I think this is a good step in the right direction, but I still have other questions about social distancing once you're in the venue and what type of venues they're going to use. I mean, do I get to be on the floor, front row when Beyonce is playing at Madison Square Garden or are they looking at more open <laughs> outdoor venues? Um, that seems to be a plausible idea. 
I totally agree. No, I think, Seema, your point about the false negatives and the false positives is exactly right. Mike, we see this even, I think Alaska Air today just said it's going to let people use their air miles uh, for to redeem them for a mail-in COVID test kit. Yeah. Well, again, that's great. But it, other than showing proof that you've been vaccinated or maybe that you've already had it, if you're just showing a negative test, these things, I mean, the, the saliva, they're... The PCR tests are pretty good, but the others are just not that reliable. Right, which I think everyone recognizes, and therefore you wonder what the demand is going to be. Are people going to feel comfortable if it really is reliant on these tests? It seems to me, big picture, you would just hope that these are all interim measures, uh, that at some point you get to you know, this destination where it's not necessarily as clear and present a danger. Who knows when that's going to be? Uh, but obviously these companies, out of understandable desperation, have to find some way of trying to reassure people. Yeah, and as my producer Tori points out, she said, listen, this could be mega lines to get into these concerts. Maybe they'll find some way of pre-screening. Who knows? It's bad enough already. Thank you guys all. We'll see you soon. Seema Modi, Michael Santoli, and Leslie Picker for this edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up on The Exchange, shares of Disney are lower ahead of its earnings after the bell today. It's also the one-year anniversary of Disney+. Plus. The key numbers to watch are next. And take a look at the regional banks as we go. The KREM pays for its second down day in a row, but it's still up 10% this week, 45% from the recent lows, as Dom pointed out, and on pace for its best week since June. Truist, PNC, Fifth Third, those are all decliners today. We're back in a couple. Disney is set to report earnings after the bell in 2020 has been a tale of two companies for them. Success in streaming and huge losses in parks, movies and cruises. The stock down about 6% this year. Last quarter, Disney announced a massive shift to prioritize streaming, but it's still a tiny part of the overall business. For more, let's bring in Tuna Amobi. He's senior analyst for CFRA Research and our own Julia Borston. Julia, I'll start with you. Uh, this strategic shift for them seems to be paying off with the stock price reaction um, you know, the investors seem to like growth, even though I'm sure they have deep concerns about the a lot of the current businesses. I mean, what are we ex how are we expecting them to kind of toe this line today? Well, Disney did get a big bump on Monday from that positive vaccine news reassurance for the stock for investors that the company will be able to get its parks open again eventually. But I do think that there will be a big emphasis in the earnings call today on the digital future of Disney, the idea that they just did this reorganization to really emphasize that direct-to-consumer relationship. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what they say, um, Kelly and Tuna, in terms of what the potential is going forward, what they think the real addressable market is for their Disney Plus streaming service, considering that they've already hit their growth targets that were set for 2024. Hmm. Tuna, where are you on the stock? It's trading around 135 today. And what about the points that Dan Loeb made about Disney uh, basically halting its dividend for now, using that capital uh, to reinvest in these more promising areas? So, Kelly, we're still um, recommending a buy on the stock. Um, I think, obviously, uh, the company is cycling through the impact of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, which has had a very, very deleterious impact on the traditional legacy uh, businesses. Um, I would think that this past fiscal year is, is a trough for them. Uh, we're expecting them to kind of accelerate from here. Obviously, a lot depends on the vaccine development. Um, but I think Disney, as kind of we look at, is going to be a prime beneficiary uh, of that. And as far as the activist um, you know, news, frankly, um, I was actually scratching my head uh, knowing that the company is already moving in the direction of direct-to-consumer streaming. Uh, now the question becomes how much more are they going to spend in, uh, in content from here on out? 
um, you know, which we expect more details at Investor Day coming up uh, in December. But all that being said, um, I do believe that uh, if you kind of look beyond this, um, you know, uh, issue of the COVID um, and then the economy begins to reopen, um, I don't think, and then live sports also coming back, these are all the key in ingredients that we need to see that will make for uh, a very, yeah. very uh, good acceleration. Yeah, so you've got a buy rating on the stock. Uh, you know, I think I think most of the street is more or less neutral on it. Uh, so that's interesting. You don't think they need to hold the dividend because they're doing those streaming investments already. So content spend, one thing to look for. But as you said, uh, maybe at the upcoming investor day. Julia, what else is notable, you think, in the results tonight uh, in terms of the metrics people will be looking for? Well, look, of course, there's going to be a big focus on those streaming subscriber numbers, not just for Disney Plus, but also for ESPN Plus and Hulu. Then I think for the film division, the movie studio, the question is what they say about their plans to go direct to consumer. This Mulan release strategy where they charge an additional $30 for Mulan for Disney Plus subscribers, the question is, did that work? Are they going to be doing more of that? Or are they just going to be taking films that maybe won't make it into theaters and put those direct to consumer without charging them more, which could be the direction they're going in? And then I think for the theme parks, the question is, how much is it going to cost them if their California parks stay closed for a while? And what are the startup costs if they have to rehire all those employees they furloughed? Is this going to be an additional cost to get the, those parks and other parks around the world up and running again? All right, great. Thank you both, Tuna Amobi, our Julia Borston, talking some Disney before we get those results after the bell. We appreciate it. Stock down fractionally today. The whole market is down about 350, so we're off the lows. Still ahead, outdoor heater sales are surging as temperatures are dropping. We're going to speak to the CEO of Suburban Propane about keeping up with this increased demand and the products he can't keep in stock. That's next. Take a look at energy as we go. After a huge spike on Monday, the sector is back to falling. It's the worst performer today that's been a familiar position for it this year. It's down about 2.5%. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. With COVID cases soaring nationwide, cities are curbing indoor dining. And as we head into winter, half of full-service restaurants are expected to extend their outdoor dining. Restaurants in just New York City could consume 1,600 barrels of propane a day as a result, according to independent oil analyst Paul Sankey. Take a look at propane distributor Suburban Propane. It's up over 90 percent from its year low, up about half a percent today. Joining me now is the president and CEO, Michael Stavala. Michael, it's great to have you. Welcome. Oh, good afternoon, Kelly. Thank you for having me this afternoon. Are you guys facing a shortage? Uh, tell me what's going on with the propane market, because even in my neighborhood, people are loading up on these propane heaters for their patios and everything like that. Well, actually, from a supply perspective, uh, there, we're not having any challenges whatsoever. You know, during the pandemic, there was a pullback in production, as you know, in both crude oil markets and natural gas. So production levels for uh, propane were also down a bit, but also exports were down. So Generally, as a nation, we produce 2.2 million barrels a day of propane, and uh, we export about a million barrels a day. And in the pandemic, they, they both shrank a little bit, but overall, uh, the decline in production uh, was not outpaced uh, by the decline in, in um, um, exports. So overall, we're, we're sitting at very good inventory levels in the United States right now. We're above the five-year average for inventory for this time of year as we're heading into the heating season. Um, and uh, we're, sitting, we're sitting in good position. 
That's good to know. Are you facing distribution challenges? Because we're used to people loading up on propane tanks during the summer from their favorite hardware shop. Um, is it is it a difference uh, in terms of where the demand is coming from regionally? Um, you know, as we head into the winter, I would expect you don't usually get huge propane demand from the Northeast, for instance. No, actually, uh, for, for propane, we have a very balanced customer mix, uh, particularly here at Suburban Propane. We have about 50% of our customers our residential customers that rely on us for heat and hot water and cooking. Uh, In particular, in the Northeast, we have a very big presence. And the rest of our uh, customer base is commercial, industrial, agricultural, and government demand. So uh, we have a very balanced mix, and our our customers really do rely on us for for heat. So we're now entering the the heating season. We're We're beginning the heart of our heating season. December through February is typically our biggest demand period. And then this, the back half of the year, which, in fact, this morning we just announced our earnings for the fourth quarter. The back half of the year is normally our counter-seasonal period where we do serve a little bit more uh, of our customers skewed towards commercial uh, uses. Um, in, this, in this back half of our year, we saw a big shift in customer demand patterns with so many cu- uh, customers that had to shut down or close for a period of time uh, that definitely uh, had a drag on our commercial industrial volumes, but we were pleasantly surprised by the uptick in residential volumes in the back half as so many more people stayed home uh, and and uh, adapted to working from home. So overall, we, we, we announced a $20 million improvement in our back half earnings for this yeah. year. And I can imagine that's quite a tailwind uh, for suburban propane, aptly named this year in particular. <laughs> Michael, thanks so much for joining us. We do appreciate it. Michael Savala with Suburban much. Propane. That does it for us here on The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.